Hi, I'm Helen Avery at the Green Finance Institute, and you're listening to Green is the New Finance. In today's episode, I'm joined by Deborah Lair, Vice Chair at the Paulson Institute, to talk about China's green finance revolution. You're now seeing Chinese companies choose to list not in the United States. That kind of capital now can be raised by just listing in the domestic markets. And what China is trying to do is capture some of that private sector money and channel it now into investment in the environment. And it really could catapult China significantly ahead of meeting its own goals, but ahead compared to the United States and the EU and what's happening in green finance. A very warm welcome to you today. And um, before Deborah joins me, I just wanted to share a little background as usual. So Deborah is Vice Chair and Executive Director of the Paulson Institute that was set up by former US Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson. She has an incredible background in both finance and policy, a senior managing director at the New York Stock Exchange. She was also senior advisor to chairman and CEO of Merrill Lynch, and then to Hank Paulson in both his role as chairman of Goldman Sachs and as Treasury Secretary. She's also served herself in the US government as Deputy Assistant US Trade Representative for China, where she was a lead negotiator for China's accession to the World Trade Organization. And it is China that we're going to be talking about today and the creativity happening on the ground there to mobilize private capital at the scale needed for China to reach net zero. We'll also be touching on financing conservation, another core focus of the Paulson Institute. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Wonderful. Thanks, Helen, for having me. It's our pleasure. So we're going to just dive straight in to uh, the work you're doing at the Paulson Institute. Um, and maybe we'll just start with some background. The Institute was set up in 2011 by Hank Paulson to focus on US-China relations. Seems more important now than ever, perhaps. How did it come about? Secretary Paulson always believed that the U.S.-China bilateral relationship is one of the most consequential in the world. And when he left the Treasury Department, he felt that he wanted to concentrate his time in areas where he felt he could make a difference. And those were in the fields of U.S.-China relations, finance, economics, trade, and the environment. And so in creating the Paulson Institute, what we did is we brought together all of those elements um, under one roof to focus really on ways to both support the bilateral relationship, to look at specific projects around conservation, green finance, sustainability in China, and look at the impact of China's growing role in other countries and how that affects the U.S.-China relationship. And I imagine you've had a really interesting four years and now with a, a new president coming in that the next four years are going to be quite different for you. Um, we won't put you on the spot to talk about <laughs> politics today. And so the work has expanded, as you've said, since it was initially set up and you have a lot of uh, themes coming in under your remit. And we'll talk about the global work later. Maybe let's just talk about the Green Finance Centre that was set up just a couple of years ago to look at mainstreaming green finance uh, through the lens of China. You oversee that center, obviously. Can you share a little bit more ab about the role of the center? As you said about the bilateral relationship, it's certainly been an interesting four years, but it's really been an interesting decade mm -hmm. because we have seen a significant shift in the conversation around sustainability, 
climate change, but most important, green finance. And in a discussion we had recently with China's former governor of their central bank, he was telling us a story of just five years ago, how many of the heads of the banks in China didn't even know what green finance was. And today they talk about it and it's a core part of what they do. And seeing that shift is really gratifying. And we felt, particularly coming out of the Paris Agreement, that it was important that we focus not just on the commitments that countries had made, but how they're going to finance the implementation of them. We need to be creative in how we look at market mechanisms and innovative ways to attract private capital to go into sustainability. Because if we're not going to be able to attract the kind of private capital that we need, governments alone are not going to be able to pay for it. And if we take China just as an example, they've estimated that they're going to need about a trillion dollars a year to implement the commitments that they have in their very ambitious environmental protection campaign. But the government itself can only pay about 10 to 15 percent of it. So we felt setting up a green finance center was critically important to concentrate our resources and attention and to find ways to work in what is one of the greatest laboratories for green finance, China. The greatest laboratory for green finance. I love that. Um, And it's quite staggering, as you say, the amount of finance needed to get to net zero and $1 trillion a year for China Mm -hmm. to meet its own ambitions and potentially, you know, $850 billion annual gap of private finance to fill is uh, no small feat. Um, But uh, there's a lot to talk about today about how that gap might be filled. But maybe let's start with the ambition President Xi pledged in September that China would reach peak carbon in 2030 and net zero by 2060. The first long-term commitment from China we've had actually on carbon reductions. So really, really positive. Um, And it feels ambitious given where China is now. But do you think it's ambitious enough? Well, Helen, it is very ambitious. And it's really a sign of President Xi's dedication to keeping the environmental issues as a core part of his agenda. He's announced coming out even with this latest five-year plan that they have, that he has three top priorities, managing risk, financial inclusion, and uh, the environment. And it's really driven, I think, by two things. One, the social impact, both on people's health, but a large number of protests were occurring. And um, there's definite economic element to this, that it's an opportunity to create jobs, to grow the economy. And the challenging thing, of course, is how they transition from an economy that's deeply dependent on coal and other types of traditional energy and shift to renewables and new energy vehicles on many more things on such a massive scale that they can actually meet that goal. A lot of this is not going to be so much about the technology. I mean, already China's one of, I think China invests more in renewables than the United States and the EU put together. The issue is going to be much more, how do you transform these industries and what do you do with the millions of workers who are going to be displaced in this process? And that I think China is going to find it's a really big social challenge for them as much as it is um, this transformation to low carbon economy. And so really, while it's a really great ambition, 
we need to see what the particular steps are going to be to ensure that they're going to able be able to meet that objective. That's a really interesting point you make about the social element. Um, one thing I know we talked about last week when um, Professor Ed Barbier mm-hmm. joined us was the Biden climate plan and how that pivoted towards job job creation and not leaving anyone behind who may be in the fossil fuel industry. Do you think that, uh, is it a bit of a <laughs> crystal ball question, but do you think it's achievable, the the ambition just set, laid out by President Xi? Well, I never underestimate what the Chinese can do. And they've shown over and over again that they can meet, they can mobilize in such a massive way that they can meet very ambitious goals. But as we have seen with some goals that they've set in other areas, and uh, for example, the national carbon market, it is yet to start trading, even though it's been established for a few years now. So we hope in this one, they actually will meet it in substance. Mm. Well, maybe let's talk about that, the carbon market then and and the role that's going to play. Um, so as you mentioned, uh, there was a hope that China would have its national emissions trading scheme up and running by now, certainly for the power sector. Um, We do have several regional pilot trading markets um, uh, across different sectors. If or when China does have a national ETS, you know, it's going to be the world's largest. So, you know, is it crucial uh, for China in this ambition of reaching these net zero targets? And, and, you know, what, what is slowing it down? I do think it's crucial for China to launch this national carbon exchange. What's so important about it is the use of market mechanisms. As I mentioned earlier, the government itself can't fund this whole transition. So the more that they can use markets to help them in achieving their goals, both in reducing carbon, but one of the other things they hope to achieve with this is also reduction of the oversupply say the oversupply of steel globally, because it's hard to transform the state-owned enterprises who are the ones that they're really going after, both from an economic perspective and from a social perspective, as they're some of the biggest employers. And so the challenges that they're facing are, one, some big ones, like just the development of their capital markets and how they start to develop futures. There are no future markets for carbon, so that will be have to set up from scratch in China. They ties into the reform of the state-owned enterprises, just simple things like the type of data that needs to be collected so that you can make educated pricing decisions and capacity building. It's still a very new consideration, even in the United States, even in Europe, who've had some experiments with carbon exchanges already. And so a lot of training still needs to be done to make sure that there's the kind of educated support in the banking community for the establishment of these kinds of markets. They've tested some of these ideas out in the seven regional exchanges. Some have worked better than others. In Beijing, for example, which really has been on the cutting edge at looking at both Uh, how to use market mechanisms, but also innovative financing around issues of pricing natural resources. For example, the carbon exchange has transformed itself into an international green finance center. And through that, the city of Beijing, headed by the very capable mayor who used to be the minister of the environment in China, is thinking very creatively of how Beijing can test out some new ideas that will eventually then either make their way into part of the financial framework for the new national exchange or be tested out in other ways through creative thinking around how you start to put 
a value on nature? And can you start to create assets out of things like bees and trees and bats? It's like music to my ears. Can we create markets out of bees and trees and bats? <laughs> we'll talk about conservation a bit later. That's fantastic. Um, you've written about how China may not be balancing green with economic growth when it comes to a green recovery post-COVID. What can China learn from the last large recovery package as it sort of looks to its uh, new, new plan? You know, during the financial crisis in 2008, China really did help ensure global stability with this massive stimulus program that they introduced at home and trying to maintain the level of the RMB. But the byproduct of it was unfettered investment in many ways, leading to significant environmental degradation. And many of the Chinese citizens have paid the price with polluted air, particularly up in the north. I mean, I have been in places in China during the winter when the sky was literally purple oh. and you can't see more than 10 feet in front of you. And I've been there when they had the first red alert, when it was so far off the charts, they couldn't even measure it. It was over 600, um, 2.5. Oh. So it it's the serious, serious issues and the same with poisoned water and poisoned soil. And the leadership recognized that this time around going through this economic crisis stemming from COVID, that they have a chance to rebuild the economy. It's opening new sectors. It's creating jobs as they look at further investment in whether it's uh, building out their data network so that more people can be online less people driving their cars, less people going to the store. And one of the challenges, of course, the byproduct is so many of the delivery services, but people running around on their motorbikes, but they are trying to underwrite two subsidies in new energy vehicles. China is now the largest market for new energy vehicles. And one of the things, quite honestly, that we have been pushing for at the Paulson Institute is to eliminate tariffs on environmental goods and services. And we think that China and the United States could take the lead on this, that this would be a new potential area to cooperate and bring this to the World Trade Organization. This would help promote economic growth. It would reduce costs and it would provide new job opportunities in all the countries that were willing to participate. Can I just um, ask you if you could elaborate slightly on that? You mentioned so climate tariffs on environmental goods and services, what does that look like it sort of practically? So what we're talking about, you know, say if um, we're exporting uh, water purification systems to China, China might charge a tariff on that of, say, 20 percent. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. just making up that number. It's not a realistic one. Right. If we could get countries to agree to eliminate those tariffs, and that for those types of environmental goods and services that they could be exported around the world tariff-free, it would be a significant reduction in cost for companies mm -hmm. and allow them to expand and potentially even enter into new markets that have traditionally used tariffs as a way to keep out foreign products. China has been honestly one of the obstacles to that in the WTO, and so we're hoping that they will reconsider their position. So the Pulse Institute's been really heavily involved in the green investment principles for the Belt and Road. Are there some learnings from the development of those principles that could be used 
for a green recovery for China? We've been very fortunate to partner with Dr. Ma Jun and his institute at Tsinghua University. And, and Ma Jun, for those of you who don't know him, was the former chief economist at the People's Bank and really is the godfather of green finance in China. And he conceived of the idea of voluntary principles that we would encourage global financial institutions to adhere to for lending along the Belt and Road. And many of those in the environmental field were critical at first when we launched these because they felt that they should have been mandatory. We felt it was a step too far because knowing many in the financial world, they would not be willing to sign up to something mandatory. And we've been surprised how positively these principles have been received in the financial world. We now have 37 signatories and 12 supporters from 14 countries and regions around the world. Some of the major financial banks have signed on to them. And what has been really encouraging as as awareness of these principles have grown, and we've seen reports written by some of the major think tanks about the principles now, uh, think tanks in the West, some of the major banks, as they've considered signing on to it, the Chinese government has now taken it a step further. And we really think this is a very incremental process. We're looking for substance over the long term. What was encouraging is today, the Chinese government released a report that looked at projects along the Belt and Road, and they have determined that they are going to rank them by red, yellow, green, red being those that are that are not considered environmentally sound. And they are going to require that their financial institutions only invest in those that are viewed in, I believe, the green and the yellow categories. Mm. A lot of details still need to come out about this plan, but it's a very encouraging step. Wow, that really is. Yeah, one of the challenges we think on the Belt and Road has better in China's environmental program overall is that they've been very good at home, but not so good abroad. The potential of the footprint of all of these structures along the Belt and Road could be that their carbon emissions are larger than China's are today. So it's critically important that we get it right from the beginning. And that's why it's such a positive sign that the Chinese, as the major lenders of projects along the Belt and Road, are already starting to consider this. Um, So in October, China began to release details of its five-year plan, um, as well as its 15-year plan to lead the way globally in electric vehicle production that you you talked about. Is there anything particular in the plan that really excites you? I think the, the best part of the plan is one that they reinforced their commitment to uh, environmental protection and two, that it was considered so normal that it's just a core part and built into the overall considerations uh, as they lay out what their economic path is forward. And we've seen President Xi really start to transform the economy, focusing much more on domestic consumption, less on government investment, encouraging foreign firms to uh, invest in China. But also what's exciting is they're moving towards creating a list for environmental goods and services that is areas where they're encouraging foreign firms to come in and participate. And these are all things that are very encouraging as they, you know, try and meet this very important goal of, of achieving um, carbon neutrality. Mm, really positive, as you say. Um, moving on to green finance, uh, it's something that's been very much embraced, as, as you mentioned earlier. And there's this understanding that, you know, private capital 
needs to be mobilised. As you mentioned, a trillion is not going to be filled by government coffers alone. Um, China is second only to the US in market issuance of green bonds, and it has you know 600 green private equity funds. I believe I got all this data from you, I think. Um, and its green lending increased uh, 15% last year is expected to double in the coming decade. So, so much great progress in green finance, also home to green finance pilot zones. Can you share a little more about what these zones are? I started my career uh, in the U.S. government focused on trade issues with China. And what they did in those early years was create special zones to test out new ideas on trade and market opening. And if they worked, they would span, expand them nationwide. So what we've seen is the creation of six zones across China where they're testing out new ideas in green finance. So in Zhejiang province, for example, uh, we've worked with the Huzhou zone, and there they're testing out fintech. And it's really quite exciting what they're doing there based on the kind of data that you would gather as a fintech company looking to make a loan. They're taking that data and using it to then to assess the environmental footprint and sustainability plans of each of the companies in Zhejiang province. And they're trying to give them all an environmental score. So based on that score, then they might qualify for different kinds of loans but also it will have an impact if they go to launch on one of the Chinese markets or if they're looking for certain kinds of investment. They've also created an online investing platform and the central bank there then is giving each of these projects an environmental score. They have about 17,000 of these projects already on their online platform and they open it to the outside for investors. And they found that because there's a lot of money, as you mentioned, there are 600 private equity companies now all searching for deals. This is an area where they can come and it's backed by the government in ensuring that these projects meet certain kinds of sustainability standards. If these sustainability standards work and these scoring work, the People's Bank of China is looking to expand them across China. So there's some very exciting things that are going on. I think one of the other really exciting projects in that space too, is trying to define what a sustainable company is. Mm -hmm. And if you can develop clear criteria for that, you can start to do preferential loans. So it's really very exciting what can be done now through both these zones, but what can be done through fintech. Continuing on this green finance theme, in October, there was a report released by five Chinese government ministries regulators, the Climate Finance Guidance. I read it and I was I was really blown away. It's it's a really positive and comprehensive document with some short term goals uh, on standards and developing pilot projects as mention of increasing forests and grassland and improving climate adaptation. And also a lot on improved disclosures and criteria and developing pipelines. I mean, as, as I say, it's incredibly comprehensive. What's the response been to this guide? And are there any points that for you really stand out? Well, I agree with you that it really is a positive sign. Uh, our chairman, Hank Paulson, often talks about the fact that finance in many ways really starts with good government policy. And you have to create the right regulatory framework then in which these financial institutions can succeed. And when it comes to climate, you almost need a push. We've watched over the last few years how 
climate finance has moved into the mainstream of financial institutions. And China has really helped in many ways to push that transition. Could you, for example, do a bond offering around a mangrove wetland? Mm. And how would you structure that? And governments can underwrite the risk while attracting private sector capital. So coming out of the issuance of this document, I expect to see much more innovative thinking. And we've been very fortunate to work with the Chinese government on a couple of financing projects. We established the U.S.-China Green Fund, which is the only national level green fund. And while the Paulson Institute is obviously a not-for-profit, we only act as a non-commercial advisor, it is a commercial fund. Mm. And its original mission was to source technology in the U.S. that could be deployed in China to help building energy efficiencies. And since its establishment now, it's expanded well beyond that. But it's just the kind of innovative work that can be done in China, you know, if you're able to come up with something that's practical, achievable, and viable. So I think the issuance of this report or of, of these guidelines is really going to help spur on this kind of innovative thinking. We talk a lot here at the Green Finance Institute about the need for public sector finance uh, and indeed policy to act as an enabler for private sector finance, de-risking early stage technologies or emerging sectors like nature-based solutions. And it sounds like this is what China is doing, making the shift um, from government finance to crowding in private capital and innovation being the focus would would you go as far to say um, as to say that they're leaders in this realization that public sector finance and private sector finance need to work hand in hand? I do think they are some of the leaders in the market. There's no question. And taking a step back from climate finance and just looking at financial services overall in China, this has been one of the sectors that they really have have reformed and opened up. Now, foreign securities firms can be wholly owned, which 20 years ago. This was just a dream. So the Goldman Sachs, the JP Morgans of the world, the world-class institutions can come in. This really helps raise and uh, the standards of the capital markets and bring them you know, up to world-class levels. The other element to it, though, and this is how it relates, I think, to the climate financing is they've tried to create confidence in the regulatory structure and removed a lot of the restrictions on the inflow of capital. And as a result, we're seeing significant amounts of private sector capital coming to China. Mm-hmm. The planned Ant Financial IPO is one example where you're now seeing Chinese companies choose to list not in the United States, where traditionally they had to list to raise significant amounts of capital, but that kind of capital now can be raised by just listing in the domestic markets. And what China is trying to do is capture some of that private sector money and channel it now into investment in uh, the environment. And that is going to be really significant. And we haven't seen that kind of structure put in place anywhere else in the world. It's going to be a major test. And it really could catapult China significantly ahead of meeting its own goals, but ahead compared to the United States and the EU and what's happening in green finance. Yeah, wow, that's really interesting to think um, of the leader of green finance in you know five ten years time being China. It definitely uh, is. Yeah. <laughs> and 
Another sector you mentioned, Deborah, where China is leading is green fintech. Um, Still feels very nascent globally, but you've been collecting case studies of green fintech in China. What sort of things are you seeing? One of the most amazing things that we have watched happen is how China's been able to gamify behavior. And really through the launch of Ant Forest, that was one of the first steps. Ant recognized that they wanted to do something that was viewed as sustainable, but it's very hard when you're a fintech company. And so they came up with this game, Ant Forest. And the idea is that you track your carbon footprint. And eventually what you do is you build up to create your own virtual tree. And once you've created your own tree, that actually is linked to an NGO and Ant has a foundation where then they plant trees in Inner Mongolia. And then they've been expanding this to cover now a wetland, which is a project we've worked on with them, and to actually sponsor farmers for organic farming. So it's a game that has real results. As of August 2020, Ant Forest had 550 million users and has planted over 220 million trees. Wow. The numbers, of course, it's China, so the numbers are staggering. But what they've also found is that they've collected significant amounts of data on people's behavior when it comes to sustainability. And that data, of course, is very valuable. It's valuable from an advertising perspective, but also from a commercial perspective in looking at how to potentially provide them with loans or many of the other kinds of online services that are now developing in fintech. So I think this is just an initial wave that we've seen, and we're going to see a lot more coming in the sustainability space. Yeah. Fantastic. I love that example of Ant Forest. Um, <laughs> in fact, maybe um, spinning off of Ant Forest, then we can move into conservation. It would be remiss of us not to talk about this, given it's such a large part of what the Institute is doing. Can you share a little more about that work sort of generally? Because I know you're doing work specifically with China and conservation, as well as sort of financing global conservation or financing nature. Saving the environment has been a cause that Hank and his wife, Wendy, have been dedicated to basically their whole lives. And it's been very exciting to build up that unit within the Paulson Institute. And we're focused really in in four areas. One is looking at how to price natural resources. And we have recently come out with a big study related to that. A second is wetland conservation. The Paulson Institute had developed a blueprint of all of China's wetlands then with recommendations on steps that they can do to better protect them and provide a training for officials and for those who are protecting the wetlands to be able to achieve those goals and doing something similar in national parks. When Hank was uh, chairman and CEO of Goldman Sachs, he actually was involved in the creation of the first national park in China through his work and support at the Nature Conservancy. Oh, I didn't know that. And at that time, that's been something he's really been interested in. And so that's a big project that the Paulson Institute has been working on and how you create the standards for development of national parks. And the fourth area then is coordination and looking at China's footprint overseas. So for example, uh, if China is not buying soybeans for the United States as part of a trade war, where do they buy them from? If they're buying them from Brazil, what's the impact on the Amazon from Brazilian farmers planting new fields of soybeans to meet Chinese demand? Mm. 
And how do we work then with Chinese state-owned enterprises who are the major purchasers of those soybeans to ensure that they're done in a sustainable manner? Wow, it's an incredible amount of work that you're doing. Um, and actually fascinating to me, the parallels with some of the work we're doing at the Green Finance Institute do. Um, specifically on the finance gap for conservation, I believe your report earlier this year with, with the Nature Conservancy in Cornell estimates an annual $700 billion gap um, in conservation finance. Can you can you share a little more about your plans to build on that report as we lead up to both COP26 and CBD COP15, hopefully? You know, we were very disappointed, as everyone, of course, because of COVID, but disappointed that the COP in China was delayed and, and potentially completely postponed because it was such a great opportunity to use China as a platform for both to showcase the work that it's been doing, but also to encourage others to try and adopt different behaviors when it comes to the environment. And there is this huge financing gap. And one of the things that Hank cares tremendously about is right now when it comes to nature, bad policy is often ending up in bad results. And so as we look at providing subsidies to, for example, maybe grow corn in places where it's not appropriate to be growing corn, you should really be growing soybeans, these subsidies are skewing the impact that it's having on the environment. So we're looking at how do we start to first do no harm in the sense of, are there subsidies that we should be eliminating? Not to say that farmers shouldn't be helped, but are we helping them in the right way? For example, one of the examples that we use in the report is about uh, a wetland in New York, and it was the major, essentially, filter for water going to New York City. No one was protecting this wetland. It was being destroyed, and there was talk then of creating this massive water purification and treatment system. The water system would have cost in the multi-millions of dollars to both build and then continue to run. But it would cost significantly less to actually just invest in the protection of the wetland. In the end, sounder mines prevailed and they did end up just protecting the wetland. And today, arguably, New York City has the best tap water in the United States. So there are ways to look at really being practical. It doesn't have to take a lot of money so we're trying to think creatively about this. And, and as I joked about earlier, are there ways to, for example, turn, make asset classes around bees? Bees are major pollinators. You need the pollination for growing crops, the crops to feed people, the crops to feed animals. This is a significant amount of money. If you can kind of capture that as an investment through a good combination of government and private sector support and thinking, you could create market mechanisms to protect the bees. So there really is a drumbeat going into the CBD COP next year of people who want to think seriously about this. And I think that's what really is the important thing is that we start to think a wave of creative thinking, a wave of, of policymakers thinking about this issue, because key is first getting the political will it sends this very strong message then to both others in, in governments, both in their own governments, but governments around the world and to the private sector and to those in the environmental space that this is the direction that the leadership is going in. So therefore, we need to start to focus our time and attention on that. 
it certainly does feel like there's a lot of momentum, as you say, happening here. You know, we and also we have the Descriptor review coming out next year, which is I think just going to emphasize even more this connection between nature and the economy. Um, so that's about all we have time for, Deborah. Thank you so much for joining us today. But before you go, we have three questions that we like to ask every guest before they leave. Um, so I hope you'll play along with us. Uh, the first is, what do you think we're not talking about enough of when it comes to financing the transition to net zero or a greener planet? I just want to reiterate one of the points I made earlier, and that it's important to lead with good government policy, including sometimes taking action by no action, and better to spend to preserve a wetland, for example, for municipal water purification, than to spend significantly more in building up a new treatment plant. Great point. Thank you. And the second is, can you share with us one thing you do outside of work if you do get to have any downtime um, that is supportive of a sustainable future? <laughs> well, uh, one of my COVID hobbies has been that I have started to crochet and I'm now making some of my own clothing Wow! Uh, to try and be more sustainable, made out of often repurposed wool or uh, uh, sustainable products. Oh my God, that is a, a wonderful thing to do with all this time that we're spending at home. <laughs> and finally, is, is there one thing you could share with us that you've read recently that has given you a sense of optimism? Well, as I mentioned before, the Chinese government has just come out with a report where they were categorizing the projects along the Belt and Road. And their idea behind it was because they can't control what the in-country standards are, for building a sustainable project, they can control what their own financial institutions lend to. And they're hoping through the power of money, they can help change those countries along the Belt and Road's behavior when it comes to sustainability. That is very optimistic indeed. Um, thank you so much for sharing those. And thank you for such a wonderful conversation and sharing all the work that you're doing at the Paulson Institute. Um, we look forward to continuing to hear your work and maybe having you on again sometime. Thank you so much, Deborah. Great. Thanks, Helen, so much. We appreciate all the good work that you're doing as well and, and appreciate you featuring us today. Many thanks. So thanks for joining us today for another episode of Green is the New Finance. Next episode, I'll be back with my colleague and co-host Ryan Jude, and we'll be talking to UK Minister of State for Business, Energy and Clean Growth, Kwasi Kwarteng, about the UK's green finance commitments. And then we'll be finishing up just before the holidays with the wonderful Richard Curtis and the Make My Money Matter campaign. So don't forget to subscribe and rate us in all the usual places. Until next time. Green is the New Finance is brought to you by the Green Finance Institute with audio production by Fairly Media.